With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the late 70s, a young couple set off from Florida to Texas to start their new life together. 17-year-old Tina Lynn Klaus was madly in love with her new husband, Harold Dean Klaus, so she didn't hesitate to uproot her life and move to Texas where he could pursue construction work. Their families were supportive, but became concerned when they started hearing from the couple less and less. Then, in October of 1980, communication stopped completely. It would take over 40 years for the Lynn and Klaus families to learn what happened to Tina and Dean. But even when those answers were revealed, a huge one wasn't. What happened to their baby? When a person goes missing, there's a special kind of pain in the not knowing. I want to tell you the stories of those who never came home. Today, I want to tell you the story of the Klaus family. I'm Kona Gallagher. And I'm Ethan Flick. And this is And Then They Were Gone. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us once again. And welcome to this very special 100th episode. We are actually recording this live on TikTok for the first time. So those of you who are watching now or later can see how many times I have to edit Ethan clearing his throat in every single flipping episode. I would really like it if somebody kept a count. Oh, my God. And I really would. Literally nobody can count that high. So speaking of my lovely husband over here, even though he is aware of, you know, barely anything related to the show, he always knows two things. Our rank on good pods, which he like will text me randomly from work. And two, apparently how many episodes we've had, because I did not know that our 100th episode was, I knew it was kind of coming up. I didn't know that it was like the next one. And then you informed me of that like last week. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Apple podcasts, like when you scroll down right before you get to the reviews, it keeps a count of how many episodes you have. Oh, yeah. I so don't that, know. That's how I know. Yeah. Well, 
I panicked, of course, because, you know, 100th episode is a big deal. Like a lot of podcasts don't last that long. You know, people give up. There's the pod fade is the the technical term for that. Um, But we made it. And so we should do something special. But I was I've been so incredibly busy with my job. I, you know, I'm a realtor. I just switched brokerages. I've been under a ton of stress. It's been very emotional. And so, um, you know, I went to the good folks on Patreon and ask them to basically just bail me out because I had no idea what to do. So I asked for suggestions of what we could do. And I received a ton of really good ones. And, you know, I kind of decided to pick a few and combine them. Then there were some other ones that were specific cases that I'm going to just save for a later episode. So basically, like, thank you, you guys gave me a ton of content. One suggestion was to do an episode on a missing person that was solved through Gian. I knew I was going to screw this up. I was literally writing this. I'm like, oh, there's no way I'm not going to fuck it up. Through genealogical DNA. You did very well, though. Well, that that time, time. yeah. So that suggestion came from Allison L. And then Doreen J., who is our lovely fan from the Nev. All right. As many times as I have to edit out him clearing his throat, I have to edit out me just like completely losing grasp of the English language. Um, So yeah, so Darun is from the Netherlands. And uh, Darun just suggested that we do a live slash unedited episode. So (laughs) you're regretting that already, aren't you? So anyway, we're combining them both. And remember, if you want to get these episodes early and ad free and, you know, have a chance to vote on stuff like this, you can do so for as little as $2 a month over at patreon.com slash pod. That's probably going to get us in trouble with TikTok. I don't think they like it when you like promote other sites, but I mean, whatever. Oh, should we promote our uh, T Public site then too? <laughs> I know I've got my, my merch on. Oh, uh, I should have I should have worn mine. I know <laughs> that I spilled bleach on, but yeah, you can get that. It's all, It's all in our show notes. All right. So now that that is all out of the way and you understand why we're here and you know why we're doing all this, it is time to get into this insane story of the class family. Because this one, you know, unlike most of our cases does have some answers, but like most of our cases, it has a lot more questions. All right, let's get into it. Harold Dean Klaus was called Junior by his family but he generally went by Dean. So that's how I'm going to be referring to him. So, you know, this is going to be an episode, unfortunately, that we don't have a lot of biographical kind of background information on, um, on the people involved, which will become clear. uh, Reasons will become clear later. But earlier this year, Dean's mother, who is still alive and currently in her early 80s, gave an interview to the Houston Chronicle. In it, she said that Dean was a good student and a kind person, but, you know, he had a propensity for making, like, not-so-great decisions. You know, he was the type of dude who would pick up hitchhikers with his, like, younger sisters in the car, or, you know, and he, like, dabbled with drugs. But it was also the mid-70s. I feel like that was just life back in the 70s. Yeah, I mean... Have you ever seen those articles that compile um, all of like the ads in magazines that sold cocaine accessories? No. <laughs> yeah, they're wild. They're like, here's this beautifully carved box for you to keep your cocaine in. <laughs> <laughs> How about this necklace for your cocaine? <laughs> like it 
was bonkers. Some would say that was a better time. <laughs> okay. Perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, more alarmingly than like the dabbling in drugs was the fact that he also ran off and joined a cult. Also. Very 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like 70s were was the time for cults and serial killers. For sure. Um and yeah, and but you know, he was only like 16 or 17 at the time, you know, so that's very scary, I feel like. Uh, luckily, he came back. It doesn't sound like he was gone for too long. And when his little adventure was over, he returned home to New Smyrna, Florida, where he met Tina. Now, you know, the, the age was a little foggy, but I think I've determined that when our story begins, they were 17 and 21. So Dean was 21, Tina was 17, which means that she would have gotten pregnant when she's like 16, 17. Okay. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, not the greatest like age difference in the world, not the worst, but, you know, the families were actually very supportive of their relationship. And part of that was, again, the 70s. But I think a bigger part of it was that everybody already kind of knew each other because Dean's sister was already married to Tina's brother. Okay, I I thought this was gonna, I mean, you said it was Florida, so I thought like <laughs> it was going to be that they were cousins and that's how everybody knew each other. Nope, nope. Uh no blood relation, uh which we actually do definitively prove later, but yeah, they were like already kind of in-laws at the time. Interesting. Yeah. Dean's mom, Donna, told the Houston Chronicle that she didn't really realize how serious the couple was. Like she knew that they were, you know, dating. And she said that Dean was like infatuated with Tina. But one day they walked into her house and announced that they had gone down to the courthouse and gotten married. I'm not familiar with that at all. I could just picture your dad like throwing the newspaper down again. <laughs> God damn it, Ethan. <laughs> so it seems as though, you know, even though they obviously weren't being pressured by their families, it was a bit of a shotgun wedding because Tina was already pregnant. Uh, so soon after she gave birth to their daughter, Holly Marie. The young family was incredibly happy. Tina was devoted to Holly and she carried a baby book around with her so she could record all of her daughter's milestones and, you know, everything. Like she was just the stereotypical first time mom who was so excited. Dean, who was working at the time as a finishing carpenter for the builders, D.R. Horton, wanted to provide a good life for his wife and daughter. Um, it sounds like he was maybe working like freelance or part time or something like that. You know, he had a job. I mean, a finishing carpenter, like, sounds like a good job, but, you know, it doesn't sound like it was super steady. But D.R. Horton offered him a better full time position in Texas. So he jumped at it because he's like, listen, if I make this money, I can provide my wife and my child with a better life. Donna, his mom, offered her car, a 1978 AMC Concord, which I don't know what that is. It just sounds like a boat. Like, I have to imagine it was roughly 17,000 pounds. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it either. Yeah. 
But um, yeah, so she she said, hey, you can borrow my car. And like eventually when you get back on your feet, you can buy it, you know, and pay me back for it. So soon after this, Dean, Tina and baby Holly packed all of their possessions into this car and headed off to start their new life in Louisville, Texas, which is a small town outside of Dallas. The couple didn't contact their family a whole lot after their move, but it really didn't concern the family too much. You know, you've got to understand, like, this is a different time. We didn't have cell phones. Long distance calls were extremely expensive. Plus, you know, they were incredibly young and they were trying to contend with a new state, a new job, a new baby. Like, they had a lot going on. But Donna did say that she would receive occasional letters from them, as would other members of their families. That was just mainly how they kept in touch. But after October of 1980, the letters stopped. And I don't have an exact date that they made this move, but it sounds like it was in the early part of 1980. So basically, they were there for, it sounds like, I don't know, four to six months, something like that. So the last time anybody got a letter was in October. And nobody really realized this, right? Because they didn't come consistently like every two weeks or anything like that. But in November of that year, Donna received a bizarre phone call. It was from a man who sounded like he was some sort of authority figure. He told Donna that he had her car in Los Angeles and that he would have somebody drive it back to her in Florida for a thousand dollars. Did he say how he got her car or he's just like, I have your car, I'm holding it ransom for $1,000? That seems weird. Yeah, I don't know if he told her on the phone or if she found out later. I mean, she does eventually find out, but yeah, I'm not sure at which point. So she's just like, okay, this is extremely weird, but I mean... He must be telling the truth because like he got my information, you know, which I'm assuming he got from the registration, mm-hmm. um, you know, and like he had the details, right? He got a hold of her. So she was like, okay, I guess. So luckily, Donna at the time worked at a restaurant that had several police officers who were regulars. So, you know, shortly after this weird phone call, she was in at work and they were there. She's like, hey, so let me run something by you real quick. I was just going to say, let me run this by you real quick. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I got this phone call. Like, what do you think about this? And of course, the cops were like, "Uh, yeah, no, like, this is not a normal thing. This definitely seems shady. Like, they didn't know how it was shady or like what the the end game was but they're like yeah you can't just do this like wire somebody a thousand dollars yeah in hopes that they'll give your car back right well so yeah so they well that wasn't they weren't wiring it they were going to meet her in person and basically like exchange cash for the car and at any point i'm sure she was asking like how did he get the car and where is where are Tina and Dean. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're getting to that part. The cops, you know, who she knew at the restaurant, they're like, listen, like you've got to call, you know, the local police. You've got to have somebody go with you. Like you can't just go by yourself because like I said, it was like a cash for the car type of situation. And this exchange was set for late at night at the Daytona Speedway in Daytona, Florida. So the guy was going to drive it for all the way from L.A., he was going to have somebody drive it. Okay. 
Which we still don't know how the car ended up in L.A. Correct. But somebody was going to drive it from L.A. to Daytona, Florida. Right. Meet her at the Daytona Speedway late at night. She was to give them $1,000 and they would give her the car. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, so she called the local police. They agreed to accompany her and they all went. Sure enough. The car was there. When Donna arrived, she was met by three women dressed in white religious robes. The ringleader, who Donna estimated to be like in her 30s, um, called herself Sister Susan. The two women she was with might have not even, they might have been girls. Like she said, they looked between 15 and 20. And they were very deferential to Sister Susan. Like they would try to speak up and then she would just, you know, kind of look at them and they'd shut up like that type of situation. So, of course, now that Donna is with these people in person, she sees that they actually do have her car. She's like, hey, like what the hell is happening here? And Sister Susan tells Donna that Dean and Tina have joined their religious group and that they don't want to have any more contact with their families. So this is a different cult than the one Dean was in when he was like 16. We don't know. Okay. Yeah, we don't know for sure what cult it was when he was 16. Yeah, we don't know. Dean and Tina, according to Sister Susan, um, have completely embraced this religious group and were cutting all ties up to and including the car, which belonged to Donna. So that's why they had the car. In LA. Right. Now, this is a nomadic religious group. So I guess the idea is that, you know, they just travel around the country. Basically, from what I was reading, like, it sounds like this group kind of traveled around the company, the country, like hustling food stamps, asking for donations, stuff like that. So yeah, they were like, going all around so feasibly in Los Angeles as well. Now, police, it sounds like they took her into custody somewhat. I don't think they actually took her down to the station. Sister Susan. Yeah. Okay. So because, you know, they were there. I honestly think what happened is that after this exchange was made, they kind of just stopped and questioned her because there's no existing police report or anything like that. And the police officers told her that like, they didn't really have anything they could arrest her on. You know, I mean, you can't arrest her with stealing the car. She says that they, you know, that Dina Tina gave her the car to give to Donna, the rightful owner. That's what she did. You know, she asked for payment not to sell the car, but to compensate them for the time, you know, and effort driving it from Los Angeles to Florida. And so like the best that the cops could do, they're like, well, you don't actually have to pay them, but there's nothing really that we can do about any of this, you know? I I mean, I feel like there's a charge in there somewhere. Well, it just didn't seem important enough, I think, for them to like, dig that deep into it. You know, this isn't like one of those cases that we talk about where like there's a missing child and, you know, they think they know who kidnapped her, killed her or whatever. And so they want to keep them in jail to try to get a confession. Like they have no idea what's going on at this point, you know? And like, from what it sounds like, 
these two adults decided to just pick up and, you know, join a cult and they were perfectly free to do so. Back to like when Donna's talking with Sister Susan, she's like, oh my God, you know, what are you talking about? Why would they want to cut off ties? You know, can you please just let me talk to him? Just like, let me talk to Dean. I want to hear this from him. But, you know, Susan, of course, refused. Uh, She also couldn't or wouldn't answer any questions that Donna had about the couple and just said again that they had joined the religious group and they wanted to cut ties. So, you know, once all of this is over, Donna is extremely upset and and concerned, as was everyone in both families after they heard about this whole thing. They tried filing missing persons reports, but you know, they didn't get much traction. And we've, you know, run into this before where like the person who is trying to file a missing persons report lives in one place and the person who is missing lives in another like that in and of itself has caused a lot of problems historically. But, you know, on top of that, you have their adults, you have testimony that they said specifically they want to cut ties they don't want to see their family like you know you have all of these things you have dean with a history of doing just this so like yeah they tried to file a report in texas they tried to file a report in florida i think they might have even tried to file a report in california because that's allegedly where their car was and, you know, I don't know if they were just flat out refused or if like the reports were filed, but nothing was really done with them. But there was no police investigation into their disappearance, you know, by anybody. Like ever? Yeah, like ever, basically, in law enforcement. I mean, you know, the family kept looking, obviously, yeah. you know, they kept on hoping that they would answer the phone and it would be Dean or Tina on the other line. You know, um, Dean's sister said that like every time she was at the grocery store, she would kind of do a double take. If there's a guy who looked like him, they kept on expecting them to show up at some point, but they didn't, you know, and they're, they were kind of stymied in what they could do to find them. Plus they were like, okay, but there is a good chance that they don't want to be found. So like how much should we be doing? So that's part of it, too. It was just a very difficult time about five years into this. So they like apparently kind of checked with the Social Security Administration, I guess, to see if they could find out if their Social Security numbers had been used or anything like that. Um, I couldn't find what they found from that, if anything, if the SSA would even give them the information. But they also registered them as missing with the Salvation Army. And I read that. I was like, the cell what now? Like, how? Maybe that was the thing in the 80s. Because so, we're, in, we're into the 80s at this point, Yes, right? it's the early 80s. So yeah, by this time, it's like 85 or 86 or something. Um, but yeah, no, it's actually, a, it's still a thing. So they have, the Salvation Army has a missing persons division. And they have a web page, like on their site, which I've linked you know, in our show notes, and it'll be on our blog. But it sounds like it's kind of aimed for situations like this, where like, it's adults. And, you know, maybe it's just people who've kind of lost touch or like had a falling out. You know, it's not so much like I think my child was kidnapped. Let me register them with the Salvation Army. It's more like my uncle was on meth for a long time, and we don't know where he is type of situation. 
so yeah, so they were, you know, registered there and the families tried to put them on as many missing persons lists, you know, as they could. But yeah, there really was not an investigation at all. Because unlike every single one of our episodes where like people don't just get up and start a new life, like they these people very well could have. You know, like it was a genuine possibility that they did just decided to cut ties and start over. Did the parents like go to their apartment or wherever they were living in Texas and Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I have not read anything that talks about anyone even knowing where they lived. Oh, well, much less but they wrote going a bunch. There. They, they yeah, wrote so a bunch I, of letters. I would so. assume there would have been a return address. I have no idea though. There's never been anything that I could find that was written about anyone going to Texas and like trying to find their home and try to like find their belongings or or what happened to it, you know? Like if they were renting a place and they got evicted, you know, if there was a landlord who threw out all of their stuff or right. anything. I have no idea. Mm. Like that is how few answers there were in this case. The family of course always wondered what had really happened. They always looked for them. And what they didn't know and what they wouldn't find out until January of 2022 is that answers have been out there all along if only someone had been able to connect the dots. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The housing market may be crazy, but you still need a place to live. Hey, it's me, Kona Gallagher, host of the very podcast you're listening to right now. True crime may be one of my passions, but my other one is real estate. For those of you who don't know, I'm a realtor with Compass based in Northern Virginia. My specialty is Loudoun County, but I work all over the region, helping my clients achieve their real estate goals. There are so many opportunities in the market right now, but I found that a lot of people are afraid to jump in. But you've got me. And I'm here to answer all of your questions and guide you through the process of buying or selling your home. And if you want a little behind the scenes info on the podcast, I'll throw that in as well. Interested in making your next move? Call or text me at 571-577-6383. That's 571-577-6383. I'm licensed in Virginia and look forward to helping you on your journey home. In January of 1981, a dog was in a wooded area in Houston, Texas. He was doing what dogs do, sniffing around and looking for treasures. What he came out with was a human arm. An, a bone or an arm? Like, what are we talking about? It says about a human arm. And given when this was, it's an arm. Like, straight up an arm, not a bone. An arm. Okay. <laughs> When police investigated, they found the bodies of two people, 
a man and a woman. According to the Doe Network, the man was white with brown wavy hair and distinctive eyebrows. He was aged between 16 and 30 and had osteoarthritis from a prior injury to the cervical vertebrae. The woman was aged 15 to 25. She was white with long brown hair and a ponytail and had brown eyes. She wore a pair of green shorts and a bloody towel was found near her body. The man had been beaten to death and the woman had been strangled. Houston is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers from Louisville, Texas, where Dean and Tina lived, and authorities had no idea who this couple could have been. The same day the bodies were found, a forensic artist made pastel sketches of the couple in hopes of identifying them. And again, we'll we'll show those on the blog as well. Unfortunately, these sketches brought no answers, and the couple became known only as the Harris County Does. Kind of jumping around a little bit, you know, we talked about how there wasn't a missing persons investigation at all for Dean and Tina. Similarly, there was very little information, publicity, anything about the Harris County Does at the time. Like, I mean, you have this young man and woman found near a house in the woods and like beaten to death and strangled. And there's just, it doesn't seem like there was even a huge investigation at the time into that. So yeah, so that case, the Harris County Doe case was completely cold for 30 years. In 2011, DNA technology had advanced to the point where many different agencies were starting to exhume unidentified bodies in, you know, the hopes that DNA testing could give them their names back. You know, at the time in 2011, um, all that they were really able to do with these two bodies was compare the DNA to see if the couple was related. Because, you know, if they're family, like that's really going to narrow the search, like you know, what missing people do we have out there who were related in some way, you know? But of course, they were not related. So that just didn't really get them very far at all. And the case went stagnant once again. It wasn't until another decade went by that the case got moving again. It was in late 2021 that a group called Identifiers International contacted Harris County to ask if they could test the remains. Misty Gillis is one of the forensic genealogists with Identifiers International. She told the Houston Chronicle that luckily the bodies were still in good condition, so they had plenty of material to work with. Once they extracted the DNA, they sent it out to GEDmatch, which is the DNA service that works with law enforcement and helps identify relatives of victims in cold cases and sometimes perpetrators. Gillis was eventually joined by another genealogist, Allison Peacock, and within about 10 days, they had a solid lead on who the unidentified male was. They first tracked down some cousins in Kentucky but eventually reached his sister, Debbie Brooks, in Florida. The male, of course, was Dean Klaus. When they broke the news to Debbie over the phone, they told her that he had been found with an unidentified woman. Debbie told them, like, that must be Tina. You know, she said, yeah, my brother was married. He went missing with his wife. 
But Florida marriage records are private. So the investigators hadn't known that, you know, when they were doing this research and they they made the tentative ID that it was Dean, they couldn't they didn't know that he was married. That seems weird. Why? That like they couldn't figure out that he was married. How could they figure that out through DNA? No, not through DNA. I'm just saying like they they know the guy's identity. Like it just seems weird that like a marriage would be a private record. No, it is. I mean, so like in Virginia where we are, um marriage licenses are not public record for 20 years. So like if you do a background check on either of us, like it doesn't come up that we're married. Well, a simple internet search would. <laughs> right. But again, th- yes, this was just last year. So obviously there was an internet search. But like you, if you searched for Dean Klaus, nothing came up uh-huh. because there wasn't an investigation. Like there wasn't really any information. They hadn't gotten any press. And so if you Google them now, if you Google like Dean and Tina Klaus missing, everything that you get is from the past year. Mm. You know, I even went on newspapers.com to search newspaper archives, nothing zip, like couldn't even find like the little blurb of, you know, these people missing that we usually find in the paper. Like there was absolutely nothing. And, you know, that's not to say that there is a hundred percent nothing out there in the world, but nothing that I could find and clearly nothing that these investigators could find either. So yeah, they didn't know. All they knew is that they had this DNA profile and his cousins in Kentucky, somebody had submitted their DNA. And so they were able to make that match and then just kind of follow the family tree, basically like using ancestry.com and reach Debbie, his sister. But basically, so they hear this, right? Like they hear that Dean was married and that, you know, this person with him was probably Tina. So like investigators like, oh, my goodness, you know, we've been investigating this for 10 days and we've uncovered the identities of not one, but two people who have been identified for 40 years. But their celebration screeched to a halt as soon as Debbie asked the next question. Where was the baby? Ah, yeah, right. I had forgotten about that. Yeah, and the genealogical investigators didn't know about her in the first place. See, I thought you were going to go with that that wasn't Tina. Oh, no. Yeah, it was Tina. And, you know, eventually they did the testing and they did, you know, determine that positively. There was no Holly. Thankfully, Holly wasn't with her parents' bodies. But, you know, that just unlocked an even bigger mystery. What happened to her? And so then at that point, the investigation into the Klaus family's disappearance, like the investigators had to go back to the drawing board. Now, this part of the investigation wasn't really something that those genealogical investigators could help with, though they did give, you know, police a good start because they had Holly's parents' DNA, right? So they had something that they could put into databases and check against and and things like that, which is certainly much more than they had before. I mean, they didn't even know she was missing before. So like they're they're at least they've got a good head start at this point, right? 
Now, the other thing working in their favor is that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton had recently formed a cold case and missing persons unit. I mean, like, I think he announced it like a month before all this. I mean, this was seriously recently formed. So they took on the task of finding Holly. This unit was joined by multiple agencies, including the Louisville Police Department, the Volusia County Sheriff's Office in Florida, the Arizona Attorney General's Office, the Harris County Sheriff's Office, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Once this Justice League assembled, they were able to perform what basically amounts to a miracle. I'm sorry, did you did you just reference a comic book? Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> and I think I did it correctly. Okay, but so you noticed that, but they performed a miracle. Can you guess the miracle that they performed? They found her. They found her. Okay, go on. <laughs> yeah, they found Holly Marie Klaus 41 years after she disappeared and her parents were murdered. So where had she been for the past four decades? Mostly chilling in Arizona and Oklahoma, as it turns out. Chilling? Yes. Uh, okay, explain that. So Holly... So, okay, so... Yeah, no, go on. Yeah, so how old was Holly when she presumably was taken? She was under a year old. Okay. Yeah, like her birthday, um, she would have been a year old, I believe, in February of 1981. Okay. So, okay, just go on. How, like, yeah, I, so I, the, I'm so the, curious how they tracked her down, and then like <laughs> they had to break the news to her that yeah. her real name is Holly, and you know her real parents are dead. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it it was nuts. Um, you know, and again, like because she was so little, she obviously had no idea about any of this. Like she didn't know her real name. She didn't know about her parents. She didn't know any of it. She was just be bopping along, living her life until June seventh, twenty twenty two, which coincidentally would have been Dean's birthday. Investigators walked into Holly's place of employment and dropped this bombshell on her. And to answer the question of how they tracked her down, it ended up being through just general investigative, you know, techniques and the familial DNA. So like apparently once they had Dean and Tina's DNA confirmed and they had like all of these family members, I guess Holly might have submitted her DNA to a site at some point. I'm not exactly sure about the ins and outs, but yeah, it was the familial DNA and um, yeah, just general investigation that led them to her. And it only took like six months. This is a huge bombshell that was dropped on Holly, but she was so, I don't know. I don't know if resilience the right word or, or what is, but she agreed that day that same day to get on a Zoom call with members of Dean and Tina's family and like meet them. Wow. Okay. That's yeah. pretty brave. I thought so too. Like the same day. I mean, that's crazy to me. So I'm assuming at some point you're going to describe like 
her family and how she grew up because I'm really curious if she's that willing to like find out who her real family is, how her childhood was. Like I'm I'm wondering if her childhood was bad. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to kind of somewhat disappoint you in that regard. Yeah. So we'll, we'll kind of get to that. Like, so first we've got this zoom call where she's on the the line with her family. She meets them and they see her face to face. And Donna said that like she looks and acts just like Tina. She's very soft-spoken, just basically Tina to a T. And that, you know, for for a family who hasn't seen her in 40 years was just wild to them. Donna told reporters, quote, finding Holly is a birthday present from heaven since we found her on Junior's birthday. I prayed for more than 40 years for answers, and the Lord has revealed some of it. We have found Holly, end quote. Like I said, this happened in June 7th of 2022. It's September 22nd, 2022 right now as we're recording this. So I I don't believe um, that Holly and her biological family have met in person yet. And I'm kind of, this is what I'm gleaning from the Justice for Dean and Tina Lynn Klaus Facebook page. But it does seem like it's in the works, basically. Now, getting to your question of like, what's going on with Holly's family, who she grew up with? Like, who are they? Did they kidnap her? Like, what's the story? Are we going to be seeing more arrests? According to police, they didn't have anything to do with anything. Well, okay. So how did they come to that conclusion? Well, during the investigation, it sounds like they spoke with Holly's parents uh, once they determined her identity. And this is before everything became public. So they talked to Holly's adoptive parents and they're like, hey, so like, where'd this baby come from? How'd you get a hold of her? And they said, well, she was dropped off at a church in Arizona. So police went to Arizona and spoke with, you know, the person who was the pastor of this church at the time. What the pastor said was, in November of 1980, two barefoot women dressed in religious gowns dropped baby Holly off at his church. The women said that they were part of a religious group who believed in the separation of men and women, a vegetarian diet, and not wearing leather. Plus, they didn't like kids, so the baby had to go. They also apparently said that they had previously dropped a baby off at a laundromat. A laundromat? A laundromat, yeah. That's a safe place for dropping a kid off. Yeah, I don't know. We don't know anything about that or like who that kid would have been or if that's true or whatever. But, you know, they're they're describing basically the exact same women. Yeah, sister, the two Sis, yeah, women sister that was... It was three yeah, women, were, but yeah, like the same outfits, the same everything. And again, because the disappearance hadn't gotten any publicity, that was never public. Like that whole Daytona Speedway car exchange was never in any news reports or anything like that. So there's absolutely no way that this random pastor in Arizona would have known about that. So, you know, he's just independently like saying that these same people dropped baby Holly off at his church in November of 1980, a month after the last letter their families received from Dina Tina and about a month and a half to two months prior to their bodies being discovered in Houston. 
So like the timing works out, everything works out. And so what it sounds like is that, you know, the church took Holly in and cared for her for some period of time. We don't know how long, but that eventually she was just adopted out. So that's why they think that the parents like, you know, had nothing to do with it. They weren't around. They were just, they came in much later, it sounds like. So you brought up kind of the timeline. Um, so it's interesting to note. So she was, she was dropped off. You said two months before their bodies were found. Right. Like a month and a half, two months. We don't, again, we don't have exact dates. I mean, their bodies were found on January 13th, I believe. But yeah, we just said that she was dropped off in November sometime. Right. So, and it's Houston. So even in that, even in that time frame, it would still be hot. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, and, but they made distinctive remarks. The, inve- the investigators, when they found the body, they made distinctive remarks about, um, like him having distinct eyebrows. Yeah. And there was that pastel sketch released. Right. That was made the same day that their body was found. Yeah. And basically the sketch like shows him with a unibrow, which is what they meant by distinct eyebrows. Sure. The the point that I'm getting at though is that the general state of decay of bodies, you wouldn't have those type of features still I mean the unibrow, sure, but like you wouldn't be able to make a sketch of somebody's face, you know, two months if they had been in the in the woods decaying for two months in the heat. Well, yeah, but I mean I think what a lot of forensic artists do is they make educated guesses based on bone structure and what they can see. I mean, you know, you have people making these drawings or like, you know, clay sculptures of what people might look like just from the skull with no flesh of any kind. And some of them are insanely accurate. All right. I, I, I would just be curious if there was anything in the police reports about the the state of the bodies. Yeah, I'm sure there was. Of course, that hasn't necessarily been made public. What has been made public was the cause of death, you know, which I mentioned. But also the medical examiner said that they believed that the bodies had been there for uh, several weeks. The medical examiner thought that Dean and Tina had been murdered several weeks before their body was found. So several weeks, not necessarily two months. But several weeks could potentially be two months. I'm just trying to gauge whether they were actually in this cult or did the cult kill them and take the baby and drop the baby off? Right. Well, that's what everybody's trying to figure out. Like currently, literally, that is what everybody's trying to figure out. The most logical conclusion is that Dean and Tina were murdered by this religious cult and that they took the baby and then gave the baby away. But, you know, Alison Peacock, that genealogist who I mentioned earlier, she's been, you know, posting online on Reddit and things like this. And she indicated that there's evidence that the group just came across the baby later somehow. But like, I don't know. I mean, that seems a little too coincidental. Like, I mean, how- like the baby in the car, like, I think what she was saying is that 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 perhaps Dean and Tina had been murdered and like maybe Holly was in the car and they came across the baby and the car and like took both. 
Well, didn't you say she's a, a genealogical detective or investigator? Right, but she's working with the family. And so she's also been speaking with the family, interviewing the family since since Holly was found. So in the last couple months, like, you know, she's been talking with the family, working with them. Sure. But the, like. The- so she's been finding out other things, not just like what she was able to find out genealogically. Right. But the, I mean, nobody in the family would have any information about that. So well, yeah. is she just like postulating a theory? I don't know. It's she said evidence indicates. So I'm thinking she might have gotten something from like detectives or or okay. you know like the detectives had told the family something and she was getting it from them. I don't know. I, again, I don't think that's likely. I think it would be a little bit crazy if the cult wasn't involved in their murder. We'll get we'll kind of get back to this, but you know, let me talk a little bit about the cult itself for a second. Because it's been speculated that it could be several different cults. The one that seems the most likely is the Christ family cult. There's this guy who is a portrait artist, and he was an ex-cult member. Not of that, of a different one. Because as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, there were a million of them in the 70s. He said that he believes there's a 9 out of 10 chance that it's them. Because like he was around at the time, and just based on everybody's description of the bare feet, the robes, like this, that, and the other, he's like, yeah, no, it sounds exactly like this Christ family cult. According to cult expert Rick Ross, quote, there aren't any other groups that wore white robes and went around barefoot other than Christ family, and the, and the locality would match as well. The time frame also matches. Christ family demanded loyalty, and part of that is that they had to discard their children. The cult was led by a creepy old guy named Charles McHugh, but he went by the name Lightning Amen. Lightning Amen. Lightning Amen. Did he say ka-chow? <laughs> so he, of course, also claimed to be God's representative because, you know, you can't be a cult leader if you're not God's representative, obviously. The group was active in the late 70s and early 80s and traveled between California, Arizona, and possibly Texas. Another cult expert, Dr. Stephen Hassan, says that he assumes the Klauses gave Holly up in order to be in the cult. But like that just doesn't fit for the people who knew Dean and Tina. Yes, you know, they were suggestible. Yes, Dean had a history of this, but like they loved their family. They loved being together. They loved Holly. Like they couldn't see, especially in like such a short period, them just discarding baby Holly. But, you know, then again, like the whole thing with cults is that they make you do things you ordinarily wouldn't. And it really seems as though the evidence available could point either way. Getting back to kind of what we were starting to say before, you know, when they were when the bodies were discovered in January of 81, they had been dead for several weeks. Holly was dropped off in November of 80. So that could have been before they were killed. Like if if that's the case, if it the baby was dropped off before they were killed, that would indicate that they willingly gave her up. But again, the timeline is such that she could have been dropped off at that church after they were murdered, which would indicate a completely different chain of events. 
And so that's where we are now. Holly has been found alive. She has been reunited with her extended family. But the questions of who killed Dean and Tina and why remain. Were they in the cult, but they were trying to escape because they didn't want to give up their baby? You know, were they in the wrong place at the wrong time? Christ family was also involved in drug trafficking. Um, they, a bunch of members went to jail for growing like $900,000 worth of marijuana, which, I mean, $900,000 in like 1980s money, like that's a lot of pot. <laughs> so, and then um, friggin' lightning amen over here, like had been busted for trafficking meth, like a bunch of times too. So there was some heavy duty drug trafficking going on with this group. And so a lot of people are theorizing that maybe they saw something that they shouldn't have seen or, you know, they were trying to escape with their baby, but the group members felt threatened. They didn't, you know, they thought they might say something. So they killed them to keep them silent. I mean, yeah, those, those theories would be my theory. Yeah. uh, I, nothing else makes sense. No. Yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't. Like, it has to be related to this cult, whether it's Christ family cult or a similar one. Brethren is another name that um, has gotten thrown around a bunch. But, you know, Lightning Amen uh, is dead. He died a while ago. He was like 77. But again, cult leaders like young people. So most of the people, you know, I I don't know if I would say most, but a lot of the people who are involved in this, who are around, are likely still alive in like our parents' age, or actually my mom's age, like younger, you know, than than our parents. I mean, these are people who are in their 60s, like 70s, maybe. And maybe they're out like go into the park with their grandkids now. And they just did this weird shit in the seventies and maybe they know something, you know, because right now this investigation is finally getting started after 40 years, like, cause there wasn't one, but it's a real investigation. Now there are a lot of people who obviously care a great deal about this. And this is what we need. Like we're looking for people who, you know, were in this area at the time who were in, Arizona or Texas or maybe California, even though there's no actual proof that the car was ever in California, Um, you know, who was around these cults, who knew of these cults, like you're needed, you know, the information that you have is necessary in order for these families to like finally get the answers that they need. Now, some good has come out of this tragedy other than the obvious of, you know, the obvious good of, of the Harris County does getting their names back and Holly being found and reunited with her family. In addition to all that, the families have started the Dean and Tina Lynn Klaus Memorial Fund. This fund will be used to help identify other victims of crimes and accidents who have gone unnamed There's a GoFundMe and a tax-deductible donation page hosted by Intermountain Forensics. We'll post the links to both of those in our show notes. While Dean and Tina still await justice, there's at least some comfort in knowing that their baby is alive and well. Sherry Green, Tina's aunt, told reporters, quote, 
I believe Tina is finally resting in peace knowing Holly is reuniting with her family. End quote. And that's it. All right. <laughs> well, I don't think I have anything uh, else to add. Actually, you know, I, I should probably throw this in somewhere in the episode. Um, Holly has not spoken publicly about her life and her family and growing up because he did kind of say, I wonder what her life was like. From what Dean and Tina's family have kind of said to reporters is that it sounded like she had a pretty normal life, though. You know, it sounds like she just she grew up and had a family. And now she is the mother of five. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and what's funny is because if you remember all the way back at the beginning, how Dean and Tina met, which is that they were already in-laws because, yeah, they had kids, and so now Holly has kids, and that makes those kids double first cousins. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but okay. Yeah, because... Yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, but that's what Allison Peacock, the genealogist, said, that they're double first cousins. So that's cool. Hopefully they'll all get to meet at some point. Um, but yeah, so she's a mom of five. She's living in Oklahoma. Everything seems fine. But again, like it's obviously been very overwhelming for her and and everybody involved. Um, and she is trying to, you know, maintain a sense of normalcy and privacy and not necessarily drag her adopted family into all this because they did have nothing to do with anything. Um, so, you know, maybe she will talk at some point and kind of give a little bit more insight into her life, but yeah, that's really all we know right now about her. That's it. That's the story of the Klaus family. So should we do our our normal ending? I guess. I guess we can do our actual outro here. investigation into the murders of Holly's biological parents, Tina and Dean Klaus, is ongoing. If you or anyone you know has information about their deaths, please contact the Texas Attorney General's Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit at coldcaseunit at oag.texas.gov. You can see all of the sources for this episode along with photos and videos at our website and thentheywweregone.com. And be sure to follow us on social and then they were gone pod on Facebook and at ATTWG pod on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe and consider leaving a five-star review on Apple podcasts. It will help new listeners find us. And the more people that listen, the more chances we have of bringing someone home. And we'll see you here next week for a brand new episode. See you next week. And then they were gone is hosted by Kona Gallagher and Ethan Flick. All research writing and editing is done by Kona Gallagher. Theme music is The Stork by Ketza. Additional music is provided by Kai Engel. And then The Were Gone is a Little Monster production. Hey, you can do it!